0: Welcome to Brews News' Brew Pro. This Brew Pro podcast was recorded at the Bintani Trade Day held on the 24th of February, 2023. As the industry matures, competition increases, and the focus on sustainability and the environment is more important than ever, the conversation around hops is becoming more nuanced and sophisticated. Matt Kierkegaard led an important conversation around hops from the US with a panel of guests, including Stan Hieronymus of Appalachian Beer, Tom Britz of Glacier Hops Ranch, Jim Solberg of Indie Hops and Alexandra Nowell of CLS Farms. We found the conversation important and insightful and hope that you do too.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Bintani. Um, My name is Matt Kirkegaard from Brews News, and I'm here to host the first session, which is... uh, It's it's billed in the program as the US Hop Cross, but it is the US uh, hop, Hop Masterclass, I think. We've got four amazing guests to speak to. Now, when I left them 25 minutes ago, when we uh, checked to make sure, they were chatting away happily, so I'm hoping they haven't left all of their A material uh, before the cameras came on. But I'll introduce you uh, to them. Um, The first is Alexandra Noel. Alexandra is a technical advisor with CLS Farms. She's an experienced brewer with a career that has seen her brew at Moylands, Kinetic, and almost eight years at Three Weavers Brewing. Over the course of her career, Alexandra has developed a special interest in raw ingredients in the supply chain, and if you'd like to hear more about Alexandra, uh, she recently featured in a podcast called Brewer to Brewer from All About Brewing in the US, where she was interviewed by our own uh, Scotty Hargrave, and it's a great chat talking about uh, a lot that's going on in the world of brewing. Our second guest is Stan Hieronymus, who I'm sure is a name that is uh, very well known. He's the author of many books, including For the Love of Hops. Um, from a beer journalist's point of view, he is the beacon of specialist reporting in the brewing industry, um, and I would highly recommend signing up for his Hop Notes, uh, which is a free newsletter that you can get from his uh, website, Appalachian Beer. Our third guest is Jim Solberg from Indie Hops. Uh, Indie Hops launched a hop breeding program at Oregon State University in 2009, which grew to include Oregon's first post-farm processing facility and an experimental hop program. And finally, uh, Tom Britt from Glacier Hop Ranch. Uh, Glacier Hop Ranch began in 2012 as the first commercial hop yard in Montana. It has since evolved to become a global dealer of premium processed hops. Now, uh, welcome, w- welcome to the four of you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us uh, late on Thursday afternoon, I believe.
2: Glad to be here.
1: Absolutely. Now... The,
2: My pleasure.
1: With, with hops, there is so much that we can talk about, but in many ways, brewers and consumers drove embracing the impact of hops in beer, is what sparked the craft beer revolution, and uh, we've seen it evolve um, rapidly over the last 20 years. As the industry matures, increased competition amongst brewers, the changing economic conditions, and the growing focus on environmental sustainability, the conversations around hops are changing, and I would argue that the conversations are becoming much more sophisticated. So, Stan, I might throw to you, uh, to begin with, um, and just talk. your hop notes has captured some of the huge uh, uh, research changes and the growing research that we've seen in hops, and uh, we've moved from just throwing more hops in, for dry hopping for impact in hops to really understand some of the chemistry of hops. Is that a, a, a fair place to start?
2: Um, understanding and sometimes misunderstanding, but yeah. Um, it's, it's only 20 years ago uh, that a researcher in Japan identified thiols uh, as an important um, aroma flavor additive. Um, and tying that in, as a matter of fact, to uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc grapes and the compounds in those. And, and that kicked off um, a lot of research, but it, it took a while, uh, like almost another 10 years before that was looked at seriously. And then the next round is identifying <clears throat> hops where those compounds, thio compounds, are available um, and then a third round, identifying hops where they might be in a bound form. So it's going to take something uh, different to free them. Uh, and we're, we're kind of at that point right now. Uh, for people down under, the unfortunate thing is the development of modified yeasts, which uh, are only available in the United States right now. Um, the people producing those are working on it, getting at least some of them okayed. Uh, to ship to New Zealand or Australia and working with those two countries together.
1: And I will encourage uh, the the four of you, if if anyone likes to weigh in on any of the questions, please uh, jump in um, rather than waiting for for a question. Jim. Oh, no, no. I I just was (laughs) changing positions there. (laughs) Alexandra is a brewer who, uh, you know, has stepped into uh, the, the, the hop industry. What are you seeing on farm in terms of the way that farmers are approaching the flavor impact and the aroma impact of hops in the farm in in the hop fields?
3: So I mean obviously we can step that back from the field to what decisions are made into what is actually planted in those fields, mm. right? And that's absolutely driven To a degree by brewer demand whether that's in the aroma side or the alpha side so really it's it's absolutely following the trends of what's going on and working kind of in in tangent with breeders as well to decide what's exciting and what can actually be brought onto the farm and grown there Um, aside from that though there's been a major play towards looking at new varieties with strong agronomics so that sustainability is something in addition to sustainability in your brewery sustainability as a, a farm operation but choosing sustainable hop varieties that yield well to the grower themselves. Because when it comes down to it, I mean, as a brewer, we understand our breweries are businesses, but the farms are businesses as well. And we can grow these really amazing hops that smell great and are impactful in beer, but if they're not sustainable at the business level of the farm, they, have, they won't survive. Farms themselves won't survive. So I think at CLS, personally, we're looking at aroma first, right? Um, we're very quality-driven in everything that we're doing on the farm. But when it comes down to what we decide to plant and expand in the future, especially with new varieties, agronomics are definitely taking a really huge focus on our decision making.
4: I could add something to the agronomics piece. Uh, Talked to a lot of farms, and the you know it's 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 uh, it's a combination of things. So what what's your yield um, of a desirable? Uh, profile of uh, sensory profile tending to be uh, aroma hops more so than than uh, alpha hops but what's the resistance to the mildews downy mildew powdery mildew or uh, other bugs in other parts of the like down in southwest idaho for instance and uh uh they're susceptible to a different um uh, uh, uh parasitic uh, uh uh grub and uh, the uh you know what is how, how easy are they to harvest? Uh, you know some of these uh, get really thick uh, woody binds, and how easy is that the hop to dry? There's a number of combinations that add to it that are less obvious. Uh, they're real obvious to a farmer who's battling with it and breaking down machines uh, because of this or that, or or having to have a regular spray program. But the agronomics, uh, you're absolutely right. That is a huge part of it that the farmer looks at,
1: Jim. You're involved in a lot of research. What are you seeing in the research stage of the uh, hop evolution?
5: Yeah, you know, I, mean, I guess just to continue on, on what Tom was saying there, um, you know, we'll, we'll look out even a little bit further uh, on the issues around climate change. Uh, in the program, some of the research and the breeding efforts, for example, um, there's an effort to um, develop some drought resistant varieties. Um another issue that has been hitting the main growing regions uh in, in the US anyway, more and more, is uh warmer winters. Um you can have a case of warmer winters where you don't get uh enough um winter chill for the hot plant. It gets confused, it doesn't know when to wake up and start growing at the right time in the spring. Um these are all wonderful things that can be addressed um in hot breeding, that sort of a thing. The the I mean, priority number one is hop varieties that have incredible brewing characteristics that, that are going to, you know, express themselves in beer in a way that, that helps brewers to, uh, to brew great beers and excite the consumers. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there's a lot more focus now on uh, agronomy, disease resistance, sustainability, better yields, um, you know, just a more stable crop that, that has some long-term potential.
4: I want to piggyback on that, if I may. Um, I had the opportunity to join a group at the German Hop Institute right before Drink Tech in September, right as they were going on in harvest and uh, had a, a quite a dialogue with Walter Koenig, who runs the uh, German Hop Institute there, and the efforts that they are going through and have been going through to uh, develop drought-resistant, heat-resistant uh, varieties. Um, you know, last year was one of those years where uh they needed to irrigate uh but uh, i think that's happened twice in the last 5 years that i can think of <clears throat> but they were not able to irrigate the german government wouldn't let them irrigate so I, th- I think the number in germany is 16 to 20% of the farms there have irrigation but even if they had it they weren't allowed to uh i know that in in uh uh cuz we had a uh manager in uh, uh in prague and uh the um uh, the czech government was concerned that some of the czech farmers weren't going to make it because it was so bad last year same thing on irrigation they've got 60 percent. i think is the number that are uh that have irrigation couldn't use it but the german hop institute has been tracking climate um for for 30 years and they showed us in black and white at least in their part of the world, that it's uh, it's very real. And so they're trying to take some of these 40, 50-year-old varieties that we take for granted, um, uh, you know, Hallertown, Middlefrew, et cetera, et cetera, and developing varieties that uh, have better agronomic characteristics.
2: I, I think that was the, the clearest, easiest thing to visualize is to realize that two years ago in 2021, uh, the Czechs harvested, had had their best size harvest in 25 years right yeah, they, did. they had their worst harvest in 26 years half of what they got in 2021
4: so what is that Stan? if your head's in the furnace and your feet's in the freezer on average you feel pretty good
2: yeah. <laughs> um, And it, and it, and it's tricky because they they are um their their researchers are developing varieties that are more drought resistant, that do better in the heat. But so far, the the growers have not moved to those. And you got to suspect part of that is because brewers are not moving to those as well. The the brewers also have to embrace uh, these better agronomics as well. Completely agree. You can grow
3: whatever you want, but if no one wants to brew with it, then you're going to sit on them for (laughs) a (laughs) long time.
1: And I imagine that's one of the great challenges, Uh, maybe throw this one to to, to Jim to kick this off, is a lot of the hops that have come on and been launched in the last two or three years have had a 12-, 13-, 14-, 15-year development phase, and the issues that brewers are confronting now are different than the ones that were kicking off uh, when when those uh, hops would have been first crossed. What are the conversations now around the agronomics versus the flavour impact in beers?
5: Well, I mean, for us, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the the, the brewing character, the flavour and aroma contribution is the, the first hurdle that you have to, you yeah, know, that's a box you have to check. And, you know, and so when we started the programme in, in 2009, that, that was the goal. Um, I mean, that wasn't terribly long ago, but at the time, most of the folks here would remember... Um, really all hop breeding was focused on alpha. And uh, even the the smash hit um, flavor hops that came out of that, like Citra, they were bred for alpha. And uh, they came out and eventually were found to be useful in a different way, um, extremely useful. And so, you know, we, we figured that eventually the craft industry um, would expand and there would be a lot more breweries and you would need um, more unique flavors, uh, there'd be a greater need for differentiation for breweries uh, of flavors. And so, you know, we were looking for unique flavor profiles uh, from the beginning. And so that never really changed. The, the challenge is when we started, I mean, our first big launch was Strata, which has been very successful, but, but it only had one year in the market before the pandemic hit. And, you know, all these challenges for the brewing industry started hitting um, you know, it powered through that fairly well. But, uh, you know, we're still, you know, the entire industry is still kind of grinding around trying to find, uh, you know, where things are going and get things balanced again. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I think what's become the bigger challenge for us is managing supply, um, really, really kind of being able to, um, along with breweries, try to figure out where things are going.
1: Alexandra, you raise the issue of, you can grow anything that you want, but brewers need to want to use it. Um, I guess ultimately that passes downstream to the consumer. The consumers want need to want to buy it um, for the brewers to make it. Is, is it, a, is it. How do we steer the market so brewers can be mindful about the ingredients that they use? Well,
3: okay, when it comes down to it, some you can't drink a beer unless it's been produced for you, right? Yep. So to a degree, it is our job as brewers to provide something that cons- the consumer wants. I don't think that someone woke up in the morning and they said, I really want to drink a hazy IPA. Let's make this like the, the biggest winning thing since like the standard West Coast IPA. It was it was brewed that way. It was, it was intentionally produced by a brewer and presented to a consumer and it caught on that way. So really, it starts with the brewer in the brewery. And, you know, when it comes to new hop varieties, a lot of times these these newer varieties, it takes one or two larger breweries to put it into, like, one of their year-round beers, and that can create a massive amount of success around a variety. Strata, specifically, I mean, as a brewer, it's been around for quite some time. That's one of the more unique proprietary hops that I had come across in a long time, and I think, you know, that hop has been so successful because it's provided something different to the brewer that we've then brought down to the consumer who now understands what Strata is, but... You know, there's, I guess, looking at American culture and what Americans drink as beer and and the fact that, you know, now most Americans understand what a craft beer is or what a hazy IPA is. You know, we've always been kind of inclined towards the sweeter things, fruitier things, and so I think that's why hot breeding has gone in this very tropical, fruit-forward direction. Um, Sure, as brewers, we're kind of, like, perpetuating this concept of what they want, but if you want to talk about, like, to appeal to the consumer. It's not the consumer, it comes out. It's out of the brewery. So it's up to the brewer to decide what they want, put it in a recipe and present it in the right package to the consumer.
1: Stan, I saw you nodding there. Was there something you wanted to add?
2: It's funny. uh, 10, 12 years ago, talking to Tony Lutz, who's the hot reader in Germany, said at the time, you know, his job is to look that far forward, have all these things to choose from, and when a brewer comes in and says, I want this flavor, he can say, yes, I have this right here. Uh, But the other change is how broad, how how much of that is going to end up planted. And, And Jim and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, as a matter of fact, do we get to the point That you do, you have to have a home run. There's not going to be another citra, there's not going to be another hop that goes to that many acres. Um, but do you need it for it to be 100 acres, 200 acres, 500 acres? I I think that's the challenge is how many you can get out there, and then to Alex, is uh, how many different hops can you grow and take good care of?
3: I mean. A lot, I think. <laughs> Do you want to talk? CLS has twenty six varieties on the farm, right now. Obviously, right. varying sizes of acreage. Right. Um, the bread and butter of CLS is El Dorado and Centennial, but we are growing a, a lot of small plots of other things. We actually had one brewer, Safe Triumph, on our farm. Um, you know, it's a, a public variety out of Oregon. That there's been a little bit grown in Washington. It's kind of fallen out of favor in a lot of ways, but we had this one brewer that just was like year after year, we select CLS Triumph and the key was for them to just write a small contract and we kept it in the ground and we grow three acres of Triumph on one of our farms just for this brewer. And so you don't necessarily need a lot of acreage in the ground, is that, is that a long-term play? Absolutely not.
2: But <laughs> well, you need a contract.
3: Yes, you need a contract. Well, and that's been that's really... A, that's a, yeah.
4: That's been
2: an issue
3: in the
4: last, I say, three, four years where, you know, contracting was was the lifeblood of of farms and uh, knowing what to plant, knowing what they could count on. And and with this uh, excess supply that has grown, uh, it's so easy to buy whatever you want on the spot market. Uh, I think statistically the last two years. uh, Brewers Association report shows that uh, they're in the mid-40s in terms of the number of growers that uh, contract, and uh, that's not a sustainable model, which goes back to this supply issue, Jim, that you mentioned in terms of and kind of touching on the whole notion of, of uh, reducing acreage in the U.S. Uh, uh, hop industry, which uh, was pretty much uh, announced at the hop convention last month in, in uh, California. About uh, a reduction of 10,000 acres uh, across the board, you know, and who can enforce that, who can control it, what varieties is going to be. Uh, there's, they're trying and nobody can enforce it, uh, but everybody sees that it's a problem. Um, and uh, nobody's going to know what the end result is going to be until what, maybe four months from now when they give the, uh, the springing reports. Um, and so, <laughs> You know, will it? But then it
3: comes. It comes down to more calculated risk, right? And I think the calculated risk in American farms now is to remove some of the aroma hops from the ground that we all love and plant more alpha. And that's certainly the approach that we're taking. Um, Instead of idling all acreage that doesn't need to be planted at CLS, we're definitely moving towards more more alpha hops than we've planted in a long time.
1: Stan, it's
4: going to be really interesting to see how it all shakes out. The proprietaries. Um, versus the public varieties, alpha versus aroma. I think you're going to see a lot of aroma coming out of the market or coming out of the ground, like you said. We've talked about a lot of different things uh, that are impacting the growers, and uh, uh, all I can say is there's going to be a shift, a pretty dramatic shift from everybody that I talked to at the convention and uh, what I'm hearing since then.
2: Well, I'd say Jim Jim can address this specifically because he he is a proprietary hop owner with strata and talk about what you're doing, which I think from the other people I've talked to, it's pretty typical.
5: Yeah, it's, it's a case where, um, and it was hard to foresee some of the things that happened, with the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the inflationary pressures, um, you know, the strengthening us dollar and the impact that has on exported USA grown hops, et cetera. So, you know, long story short i mean the market you know we you know we're we're lucky that we launched strata and it's very successful it's relatively new it's still a growth hop um but it's not going to grow as fast as we thought during these during this rough patch basically and so yeah you know you you get into a case like that and there's just no way around um cutting way back you know we call it idling some acreage and so we're not going to take it out of the ground because in the long run the demand we feel is going to be there um but we work with the growers, and we say, "Hey, we, we, you know, we're overshot. We have to idle, uh, you know, 30 percent or so of the acreage, and um, they'll take care of it still. We'll compensate them for, you know, watering the the plants and keeping them free of mildew, sort of a thing. Um, and so the farm's okay. You know, there's some lost opportunity, but for us, I mean, the deals. You just don't want to be stuck with a mountain of hops out there, and as we're trying to figure out where the market's going and and uh, and when it loosens up, I mean, you know, we're doing that. But at the same time, we just launched a, our, our newest hop from the 2022 crop called Luminosa. Um, you know, you come out of the blocks, there are zero contracts. Uh, we were pretty confident that it was going to be a well-received hop. And so, you know, we went out fairly aggressively with about 40 acres or so. Um, and it's been very well received. So there's one yeah you know some people came in and immediately wanted a contract, not enough to necessarily say, "Hey, let's expand it dramatically, but we can clearly see that it's a growth hop. It makes sense to put in some more acreage, and so that is one we will we'll, we'll we'll propagate we're doing that now, we'll put in some acreage um there's gonna be demand for its unique characteristics so uh so you still have that going there's 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 a need for certain unique flavors in the marketplace, um but at the same time, you know. The the old standbys the, the Citra Mosaic Simcoe's you know they reached their peak and they're awesome hops but they're going to settle down to a much lower number than where they are right now they're still going to be huge um, they're still going to be great for the industry but um, but yeah it's just it's it's challenging right now and you need to bring it into balance you know
4: we're kind of uh, at the opposite end of that spectrum with our new variety that we launched here uh, in Montana called Aroma and uh you know it came out of my research hop yard i couldn't get anybody to really grow it that could process it properly and finally a couple years ago we we found a a grower that had the infrastructure to do it it's doing really well agronomically it's fantastic um we this last year uh was the first year we've had it in pellets so we're just testing the market demand and then we're uh, assessing what's the reaction uh we've got you know, collabs going all over the place. So uh, positive results, but the issue that I'm looking at is how to pace adding more acreage, knowing that I've got to, like your German friend, look look two years in the in the future uh, to try to figure out what kind of acreage we're going to add to that. So you know, it's it's very much uh, like keeping our our ear to the ground, and you know, we can't see the buffalo, but we can sure hear them coming.
1: Stan. The issue of oversupply seems to have exploded you know, into the consciousness of, uh, of the brewing industry. As a long-time observer of the industry, what has contributed to that? Has it been hops were overplanted for con- uh, market growth that hasn't come, or has the usage of hops and the demand for hops in brewing receded? Well. I-
2: I'll answer the usage one first, Uh, simply because uh, the Bruce Association tracks usage. And if you look at the number that they will show hop usage, that's that's the pellets going in, going down just a tiny bit. But of course, it's about one and a half times what it was uh, six, seven years ago. However, their calculation is more difficult because we have so many advanced products uh, that Bart Watson looking at that thinks overall the raw hop that goes into that is probably going up per barrel being produced. Um, And I think it was at the hop convention, but he's given two presentations recently. I saw the hop convention and then to association members last week um, thinking you're going to get ongoing from the craft industry single digit growth in hop usage. Uh, the problem was that didn't happen in the last couple of years. And then meanwhile, planning was overly optimistic. So uh, Alex Barr's estimate is there are probably 35 to 40 million pounds excess <laughs> that need to be worked out. Um, and you've got a capacity, depending upon what happens, uh, and, the, and the difference between uh, 21 and 22 was simply a bad crop. But you ended up with uh, 12 million pounds less. So the reduction to get to 40 million to take four years means you have to produce 10 million pounds less per year. Uh, uh, So dropping back to 50,000 acres, getting sort of average uh, uh, yields would get you to that number. So the excess of course came from the pandemic was certainly a factor. it 's been a factor Jim, Jim and I talked about this again. overseas shipping to Europe just totally collapsed. Um, part of that is the exchange rate, part of it is the pandemic there as well. part of that was the shipping cost. so all these things were harder to estimate, and the market has not reacted to prices well either um, so talking to a couple of dealers who were saying you know in in the last six months or so, so it took a while that brewers are are turning to more often asking for hops that are less expensive, which often means the, the public hops. And some of those, those varieties, which maybe should have been priced lower, um, didn't react as well. And, uh, an example would be Amarillo, which has gone through its rough period, but certainly Darren, did a better job of reacting to what was going on in the market and pricing a hop. And I would say the same thing happened with Eldorado at CLS. It's, it's more market sensitive. Does
1: anybody we're want to- We're hearing a, a lot question? of those same
4: things, uh, Stan, in terms of uh, the price sensitivity uh, on international hops. I mean, on shipping internationally, there's there's definitely, there look, and this is an opportunity that we're hearing uh, for new varieties that can be uh, priced uh, in between where some of those proprietaries are and where the uh, pr- where the public varieties are, they're trying to get their costs in line. Mm-hmm.
2: And and if if we go go back uh, back to your question about uh, research and what's going on, as as people begin to understand the compounds within the hops. They can find those compounds in a combination of hop varieties and put them together in, in brewing. In, in some ways it helps, um, cer- certainly this is brewers and growers working to understand where, where the brewers can tell the growers what they want and, and the growers can tell the brewers, maybe I can do this.
1: Tom, looking at some of the market drivers for hops, when, when I look at the marketing materials for hop soil, it's almost a case study in the things that are driving a lot of the market. If, if I think back 15, 20 years ago, when the IBU wars were taking place in the brewing industry, brewers almost revelled in the inefficient use of hops um, as, as a selling mechanism for beer. Where, you know, with cost pressures, the changing economy, and also changing drinking styles, it's things like cost, efficiency, consistency, balance are, are the words that brewers. And that seems to be the what the, the hopsoil marketing materials uh, tick all of those boxes.
4: Well, that wasn't how we started. And, uh, you know, when I first got exposed to uh, getting a, a fresh hop, a wet hop, steam distilled hop oil... Um, I was blown away by the, uh, you know, by what it did to a beer. And, uh, I thought that, that it was the sensory that was the hot button. And after working, I launched that back in 2016 and boy, was I wrong. Uh, and so brewers who started using it, uh, the, the biggest thing that we did to develop those materials that you're talking about is we just shut up and listened to what the brewers told us. Uh, they told us about how they were, you know, their average yield was, uh, um, increasing with the use of of this, and they were they were, you know, we really came into a uh, uh, a messaging of efficiency, um, the economics, the uh, reversing the yield loss. Uh, you know, everybody talks about the more hops you use, the more beer you lose, and we can find out that, or we learn that. For every 400 grams of hot pellets you use uh, per hectoliter, you're losing about six and a half to seven and a half percent of your yield. And and so if they're using a kilogram, you know, boom, you're in the uh, 15 to 20 percent yield loss. And if we if we can recover that now, it's an economic uh, conversation. And it's funny because uh, I've been telling my people internally here that inflation is our friend because uh, this is one. I guess, ingredient from a cost perspective that can reverse the or, or counteract the inflationary issues. Another thing when I started out with that, um, I had, I mean, this is a real typical brewer that I would talk to. We're traditional brewers and we only use hop pellets or whole leaf or something like that. And brewers were very resistant to extracts. <laughs> Going back to Bart Watson's uh, presentation, Stan, that you were referring to, The thing that stood out to me is the change in format that has become accepted and the reason why, um, the, what shocked me was that I think it was 84, 85% of all the hop equivalent pounds used in the U S, uh, was, was hop pellets. I didn't realize it was that low. I thought it was over 90%, but he only started asking this question in 2021. So he's only got two years worth of history on this, but, um, what he, the other downstream products that he measured, um, interesting, he included whole leaf as one of those options, uh, powders like cryo as one of those, and then all categories of oils in that. And from 21 to 22, uh, the powders was about the same um, 7.4, 7.5%. The whole leaf declined from, let's say, 4% to 2%. But what jumped out at me was that the oils went from of of all the equivalent pounds used uh, by association members responding to the survey to 11.9% and uh, hop pellet, I think it went down to 76% or something like that. But it just shocked me that uh, it was about a three and a half fold increase in the uh, use of all kinds of oils. And there are many, many kinds of hop oils out there. But he furthered that uh in I think in the the collab hour that you were talking about, Stan, yesterday, and he mentioned that uh uh it was efficiency. It's it's uh, it's being driven by efficiency. And and when you look at the average craft brewer using about, you know, it's kind of held steady at about 1.5 pounds per barrel um in imperial measurements uh for the last five or six years. And you compare that to industrial usage at about one-tenth of that. Uh, it's um, it, it it's a serious problem, and anything that brewers can do to be more efficient, that's why those boxes are checked in all our marketing materials.
1: Does anybody want to add to that and talk about the Alexandra as a as a brewer? You'd remember the great debates about uh, what was craft beer, and traditional was a big element, and it was uh, you know old fashioned brewing. Uh, there has been a significant change in the discussion around the use of hop extracts and hop products?
3: Um, I've never been resistant to the idea of using them. Um, I like to say I was born and bred as a California brewer, spent my entire career brewing IPAs. So it was all about how to make a hoppier beer, not necessarily a bitter beer, a hoppier beer. Um, I come from a school of lower bitterness IPAs, pretty hazy, but like, you know, the kind of, Newer, uh, newer style West Coast IPAs. Uh, but I still remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, about six or seven years ago when Cryo was being piloted as just a powder, right? And it hadn't been pelletized yet. And you have Yakima Chief kind of knocking on your door saying, hey, we have this new product. It's a concentrated, more than a T45 concentrated powder of lupulin. We'd love for you to use this. And we threw it into the whirlpool. We threw it into a fermenter for a dry hop. Well, it floated on top of both things. It was impossible to homogenize into the wort and into the beer. And we're like, well, this is great. It's fantastic. This isn't going to work. Um, I think a lot of people gave me that same feedback because they pelletized everything shortly after to use a little bit of weight. Um, but I've really loved seeing one, it's so because I've mostly worked for small breweries, yield is amazing to see. But first of all, it's aromatic impact to me. So when I'm able to see a really concentrated aroma and also, when you're processing hops into different forms, you're kind of leaving out some of the lesser desirable characteristics that you might not want. Um, obviously, you need some of the plant matter. Polyphenols are important in a beer. However, you know, stripping some of those things out, you were able to get these more concentrated characteristics, and so that's what always uh, really excited me about advanced products of all kinds. Um, you now have more of the liquid additions and. You have some brewers playing around with terpene additions, in a, you know which can be a little over the top. But whatever you could provide to me is kind of like a palette as a brewer, um, I was always on board uh, for all of that. And so it doesn't it doesn't surprise me to see that it's been uh, adopted so readily. Obviously, the yield increase is pretty great when you know you're a large brewery. Two to three percent really quantifies itself quickly. But that was never necessarily my focus.
1: Jim, the access the access that brewers have to new ingredients and new techniques, and a better understanding of the product that Alexander alluded to, seems to be coinciding with a consumer trend towards drinkability and a change in the approach that they're looking for in craft beers. Are you seeing that in in, in the U.S.? <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I think
5: I think the uh, they do use that term drinkability a lot now, and. I feel like we're seeing that I I, you know craft brewing here had a ton of success in aggressively hopped beers um, and those aren't going away I mean that's a particular consumer and they love their heavily hopped beers and they drink a lot of them um, and it really was a great driver of the craft industry and the hop industry frankly but um, but yeah I think that there's a broader audience out there that we're kind of getting tuned into I mean you know the hazy thing you know, like was mentioned earlier, you, you, you know, it just proved what, you know, other industries already knew. People like smoother, you know, less bitter uh, flavors in a lot of, in a, in a lot of uh, beverages. And that, that proved true in, in beer. There are a lot of people who prefer that. And it's great because it's kind of opened up a whole nother spectrum of potential consumers for, for beer, um, especially in craft. So, um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that that's happening. I think there's more interest in, um, you know, lower alcohol beers that are flavorful. Um, you know, that's not, you know, necessarily. I think it's an additional thing, and so that does still help. I mean, the hop industry loves to see, you know, four pounds per barrel going into IPAs kind of a thing. But I think, you know, for the industry overall, it's super healthy to have some – lower alcohol options that are flavor, flavorful and unique to craft. Um, So it's really nice to see that. I I think, you know, we we kind of focus on pop varieties and having kind of smoother characteristics, um, Mm -hmm. you know, bright, fresh flavors, but smooth, accessible, um, accessible to a wide range of uh, consumer palates. And uh, so you know, that, that, and just, you know, on the, on the downstream products, I mean, it has been great to see all the options that are out there. I mean, it's, it's kind of difficult to navigate. I mean, there's so many different downstream products now they all kind of have their place. Um, but it's, it's fun for brewers to figure out where they help. Um, you know, we kind of like to start with, uh, you know, the T90 pellet, you know, we kind of we jokingly refer to it as a T99 pellet because it, it, it it has over ninety-nine percent of the natural hop cone. And we kind of like to start there because with new varieties it it does express the full spectrum of natural flavors that come come from a new hop variety. And you know, so it's kind of nice to get started there, um, get that established. Uh but then, you know, I mean, our neighbors at Crosby Hops have developed another uh, cryogenic lupulin loop, pellet called cgx and so we've worked with them to go ahead and make strata available in a cryogenic form um in a concentrated pellet with which i think is great you know combined with those t90 pellets as a platform uh to come in and you know punch up character a little bit and gain some efficiencies i mean why not you know it works nicely so yeah the drinkability thing i think is good for craft you know Thank God the bitterness wars are gone, and... uh. When we talk about
2: drinkability, though, I think you should remember, again, we'll invoke Bart Watson's name, uh, where he's looking at IPAs and Hazy IPAs, the growth in the IPAs and Hazy IPAs have higher alcohol, as a matter of fact. Alcohol is a good carrier for flavor. That's part of it, flavor and aroma, Um, and maybe, unfortunately, I don't think anybody's proven this, but... When consumers look at what they're getting, um, they like the idea they're getting more alcohol for their buck. So uh, interest in higher alcohol beers is not going away.
1: Well, I guess that's one of the things that's always differentiated the Australian and the U.S. markets. Our tax regime punishes higher alcohol and uh, yes. consequently, yes. our, our industry. And, and I would argue that Australian brewers are some of the uh, most innovative when it comes to lower alcohol but flavoured uh, beers, it sets them in good stead for some of these trends that we're talking about. It, d- does anyone have any observation on, on, on that, the way that that cost pressure may have driven the, the, the use of hops?
2: Or lack of pressure, you mean? Basically, that's what, that's what sets the US apart from many other yeah. countries, because mm-hmm. you don't have higher taxes for higher amounts of alcohol. And plus, not, we're yeah. just generally
4: drunk. <clears throat>
3: I think where you've seen more of the pressure uh, to reduce hop use is through for any brewery that's packaging, and most breweries throughout COVID had to start packaging. The increase in your materials on the package side aluminum, paperboard, plastics, really malt in addition to that. Remember, we all use malt in our beer. Um, We had a terrible US crop and uh, malt has skyrocketed. Everything has really increased in cost and it's, it's outpaced inflation in a lot of ways. And so, you know, you have a brewer that has to make a decision. You, you have to put the beer into a can, which usually has to go into a carton of some kind. But you can use a couple of pounds per barrel of hop. Well, not per barrel, but like in general, you can cut your hop use a little bit and it's not necessarily a perceptible change, but the packaging is kind of an unavoidable part of it. And so... At least at Three Weavers, fortunately, we didn't have to really make a ton of decisions in terms of cutting recipes, but the squeeze on the cost of everything else, it it hurts for sure.
1: The the last topic I wanted to um, throw to to the panel before we went to the floor for some questions is the issue of sustainability. We've touched on it briefly in a number of ways, but... As consumers become much more aware of sustainability and uh, carbon footprints uh, for, for industries, what, what are some of the innovations that we're seeing in hops uh, specifically? Uh, maybe start with uh, Jim.
5: Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Alex touched on some of it earlier. Um, you know, one of the great ways to to improve you know, the, or I guess reduce the carbon footprint of a, of a hop yard is to have higher yields. Um, and uh, yeah, so new varieties that can, uh, can have a higher yield per acre. Um, uh, assuming the chemical inputs to that acre are, are the same, um, you're, you're definitely improving. Um, you know, one thing we do, we're based in Oregon. And so we're, it's a somewhat unique growing environment and we're a little better positioned to to uh focus on earlier harvest dates. Um that's another big help. We can have a strat is one of those that is a an early an early hop. And so it's in, you know, a month before you know they're starting to crank away on mosaic, for example. And you know, you have a whole month, and it's during that month of the most disease-ridden time in the hop growing process of mildews, et cetera. Mites and and so it's it's great. You miss that whole month. You can you can have your hop in. It's healthy. um, uh, You know, disease resistance, uh, pest resistance. Those things contribute tremendously because again, the farm can reduce their chemical inputs and what they're having to do to protect those plants. And so, yeah, those are the main areas of focus um, from a sustainability standpoint. I think consistency of the character plays to that as well, because if you can, I mean, the, the the more accurately you can be, you know, producing, you know, if you're not overproducing, that helps a ton. I mean, if you're having to overproduce and end up composting, you know, a significant percentage of hops, that's working in the wrong direction, right? And so if you can uh, be consistent with the character, uh, consistent with, uh, you know, the the, the performance, uh, some varieties are all over the board, and it is so hard to take a variety that is going to be, you know, 2,500 pounds per acre this year, and then 500 pounds per acre next year is almost impossible to manage that. So so focusing on, on those areas is, is, is really the, the main area that we look at at with respect to sustainability. Okay. Yeah, like yeah, I mean, to... chemical
3: inputs, right? Oh, okay. Sorry, chem- chemical inputs are really the single largest cost behind labor on our farm, and uh, when it comes down to it, you reduce that. That's great. But, you know, another thing that we've done is how to remedy old hopland, too, through cover cropping and taking care of the soil itself so that there are less inputs that have to go in because the ground itself is in a healthier and more sustainable place for the crop. I mean, we're farming on land that's been set hops on it for a hundred years, and you're going to strip the land of everything that's inside of that soil. And so, Taking an approach throughout the, you know, the non-growing seasons and what we choose to plant and how we choose to rotate these cover crops through our field has had a huge input on, one, the quality of the hop coming out of the ground, but two, how we actually have to intervene with it throughout the growing season.
4: One thing I'd like to add is that last year, last a year ago, January, the Hop Growers of America Um, they shared with us the first life cycle assessment of greenhouse gas emissions and uh, 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 carbon um, in, in the whole production cycle of, uh, of growing hops. And uh, there were a few things that uh, in that presentation that I thought were kind of eye opening. Uh, Some of them, I guess, in hindsight make perfect logic, uh, but uh, in the whole from, from Planting and the merging from the ground all the way to harvest and uh, processing, pelleting, packaging, that whole range. <clears throat> uh, 90% of the greenhouse gas emissions came from the growing, harvesting and kiln drying of the whole co- of the whole leaf hops, hops. About 8% in the pelletizing and packaging and 2% were just kind of blown off in other losses. But not surprisingly, the biggest single source of greenhouse gas emissions were from kiln drying of the hops. That kind of made me open up my eyes and say, well, wait a minute, with our hop soil, we're bypassing that whole uh, step. And what does that mean? So we had to do a deep dive to find out, well, how does, how does that compare with our steam distilled hop where we're doing that? So we ran the analysis uh, of that. And what we found is that because of that, now we still have to run a steam boiler with natural gas and uh, to create the steam to do that. So it's not hundred percent offset, but when we did compare side by side, we found out that the production of hopsoil, soil, uh, the, the greenhouse gas emissions was almost 47% less. Now the question, so we found that that's a fact, where does that message, uh, where does that play well? It plays really well in Europe. They're very, very conscious of it. I don't find that message plays as well here in the States. I don't know how that message plays uh, in, in Australia, but I'm finding that there are some areas where they will talk the talk, but uh, they won't walk the walk. And I've talked to one large, I can't remember who it was. And if I did remember, I couldn't tell you any or wouldn't tell you anyway, but uh, it was one of the, uh, big five, uh, beer companies. And, and, uh, the fellow mentioned, yep, yeah, we've got our sustainability. We're going to get to net zero by 2030. And he shook his head and he said, we have no idea how we're going to get there. So, um, you know, how, how to take these issues of sustainability from the hop growers and producers all the way to the brewers so that it's quantifiable, um, and, and, and the consumers respond to it, brewers respond to it. I mean, you can come up with lots of different ways, but it has to be meaningful. And like everybody here has been talking about, somebody has to buy that, uh, that argument. Somebody has to buy that story and to where it really, really matters. And one is cost reduction. That's important, that's, that's an easy message. But in terms of we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that has to be an important story to everybody.
1: Stan, last question before we go to questions. I think it's, I'm i not sure if it, there's even an answer for it, but hearing those challenges with sustainability uh, in, in the product versus what consumers expect from the beer, how do we uh, ins- ensure that we're delivering uh, hops that deliver the flavour but also have that sustainable uh, element to them? It, is, is it better understanding the chemistry of hops that w- we started the the, the chat talking about
2: well if you're willing to wait 15 or 20 years um which we're going to have to wait a certain period um the understanding of the genome is is advancing quickly so you you'll just be able to start with a great base towards sustainability and this goes to certainly uh, i guess we were talking about irrigation among ourselves um before we started but if you worry about climate change, that that's and how heat resistant the hops are, things like that. You think about the hops of the future. That's what breeders are working on right now, and and, and both public and private programs. That if you can do that, you can go back to the same element, and you you start like Sean Townsend, who is who's a breeder for for Jim, is one of the leaders in understanding hop genomics. And as these things advance, you start with a great base, and then you talk about what consumers and what brewers want in terms of aroma and flavor. So down the road, there's good reason to be uh, take a positive view, I think.
1: Terrific. Does anybody have any questions? We've got an amazing uh, panel. Does anybody have any questions? We can get a mic to you. Hands up, no one's got. Or no one, everyone's too shy to ask a question. I
3: need mean a little more <laughs> coffee,
4: huh? Yeah. Too early in the day, not enough beer.
2: Yeah, it's about time for beer for us here. <laughs> it's,
1: right. uh, shy Australians, that's an oxymoron. The, <laughs> the pubs are open here, but I'm not sure. I think everyone's still got a coffee in their head. So I guess before we let you go, does anyone, have, do each of you have a final thing you'd like to say about um, what we're seeing in, in hop development or hop usage in beer? Jim? No, I, you know, I would only want to say to
5: the, to the group there that, uh, you know, keep charging ahead and brewing great beer. Keep the industry going. Keep it interesting. Bring more consumers into it and uh, use as many hops as you possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra?
3: It's twofold. Don't forget about public hop varieties because they're your friends. And write contracts, please. It'll
1: help. <laughs> Terrific. And Tom?
4: You know, uh, the folks at Bintani uh, are very sharp. Uh, they've got uh, a good variety of different products, uh, downstream products, as well as uh, new products. Uh, you know, refer to them uh, for technical advice. Uh, they can uh, um, introduce new things to you that uh, will be helpful, useful, innovative, uh, and make you all better
1: brewers. And Stan?
2: I think the more time that brewers and hop growers spend together, uh, the easier it is for them to make advances and understand what the other ones want. Uh, I realize that that you might be a brewer in Australia and you say, how do I communicate with brewers in Germany? If you start by communicating with, with uh, growers, I meant growers in Germany, growers in Australia, you at least begin to understand the hop. And every conversation a grower has with you as a brewer, they understand more about what you want as well.
1: That's great advice. Well, Jim, Alexandra, Stan, and Tom, thank you very much for giving us a part of your afternoon as we uh, kick off the uh, day of education down here. Thank you very much for joining us. Right. Okay, yeah, have, have a, a, round of applause. a good you. day of
2: learning.
5: Yes. Uh, adios everybody
2: adios you. thank you so much
1: thank you all right okay bye
0: thank you to everyone at home at work and on the go for listening to this Brew Pro podcast if you enjoyed this content we would appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast in your app of choice this helps listeners in the brewing industry find the show organically If you have any questions, comments or episode ideas or just want to get involved, head to our website, bruisenews.com.au. We love hearing from you all.